And I'm Dave. And you're listening to The Doctor Who Show, where this week we'll be reviewing Thin Ice. Dave, how are you? I'm not too bad, Rob. How are you? I'm quite all right. I've just watched this episode, as have you, obviously, and we're going to give our hot take on it. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I must admit, I'm a little bit later to the party today than I was last week, but it was a big day yesterday. Carlton did beat Sydney, so... Yes, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in Had my to get defense, that one in. Yeah, I know, I know. But in my defence, I can say that Carlton is my Melbourne team. Well, it's my only team, so. <laughs> hey, Greater Western Sydney are doing okay, though. Well, if you like that sort of manufactured modern team, that's fine, yeah. <laughs> like the Melbourne Storm in the NRL? No. Melbourne is the sporting capital of the world. Everything we do is natural. <laughs> but to see nice. Yes, to thin ice. We'll get to the sports desk later. Um, can I just say at the top here, I, I never know what you're bringing to the table when we record these things, and you don't know what I'm bringing to the table. But I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say, I think this, I don't really want to go into it too much at the top here, but it's, it's a really hard one. I look at my notes here about what I'm going to talk about at least, and for a few of the things I've noted, I think, do I really want to go down that rabbit hole? But if I'm being honest to myself, maybe we have to. I know that could be very cryptic, and it might only just apply to my notes, but hmm, I've got some interesting things to say this episode. Look, I think I know potentially what path you're going down or what rabbit holes you're looking down. This one, I actually think there is genuine depth below the ice, mm-hmm. and I think there are some issues that are worth exploring. So, yeah, this could be interesting. All right. Shall we start with our word of the week, though? Sure, what's yours, Rob? As much as I don't want to say it, my word is unfulfilling. Okay. That's not very cryptic. (laughs) No, it's not a cryptic one this week for me. What's yours? Grace. Grace? Hmm. That could go in a few directions. Shall we get into it? Let's go. Wow. I want to start this week by talking about the Doctor, the character of the Doctor. He does seem to be back, to me at least, to his series nine most ordinary um there's a bit of sparkle here and there for me and he does make a really good speech at one point in the story but this is i guess now with three episodes into the series and we've had one where he was really fluffy and sparkling and amazing and everyone was saying oh this is how he should have always played it and the next two episodes including this one he's a lot gruffer he hasn't really moved on from series nine i was a wee bit disappointed by the doctor in this episode well, I'm going to disagree. I really reveled in the Doctor in this one. I thought it was a wonderful combination of, as you said, that sparkliness. There was some lovely little banter. The um, conversation you had with Bill towards the start where he's teasing her about the um, uh, the butterfly effect, you know, where they're doing the whole Sound of Thunder mm. references and, oh, Pete, you've just forgotten all about him. And I, I thought that was really quite funny and endearing to me. You also got moments of seeing the genuine alienness of the Doctor, which I really like, and Capaldi does that really well. Uh, I don't think that he was, with the exception perhaps of one moment, which we will discuss, I'm sure, with the exception of one moment, I don't think he was the callous, nasty Doctor that we saw in something like Into the Dalek right at the start of his run. No, no. It was the right side of that. Yeah, I wouldn't say he's Series 8. That's why I'm specifically saying Series 9. Can you see at least a difference, though, between the Doctor of the last two episodes and what we saw in the first episode, in the pilot, for example? Look, absolutely I can. And I'm not upset by it, though, because I thought that the alienness that he brought to it 
was a nice mix and the fluffy was there. So I, I, I was enjoying the different aspects of the Doctor all the way through this, particularly because of the way Capaldi plays it. So I agree that it is different, but I'm liking the difference. Okay. What, uh, what aspect of the episode do you want to kick off the conversation with on your side? Look, I'm, I'm going to start and throw out there, and I think it's a good place to start, the world building of this. Okay. Because I thought that this was an example of an attempt to go back in the past that, look, look, I know we're not going to get historicals like I love, like the, the Highlanders or Marco Polo, which, you know, it's a very academic sort of dry sort of historical and Shakespearean in, in tone. We're not going to get that in modern TV. I'm, I'm, I know. Mm. But I thought this did, this did make a very credible go at trying to build a world that not just reflected the imagery of the time that looked wonderful, that looked grandiose, that was that actually captured it, but also captured the sort of the themes and the vibes and the tones of the era. And I thought they did that really quite well. And Bill mixed in with it, I thought, in a really convincing and honest way. So I, I like the world that they built in this episode, which one of my biggest criticisms of New Who is it doesn't do past stories well. Okay, well... I'm going to disagree with you, but I'm going to delay that disagreement until we get to our words of the week later in the episode and talk about what, what they mean to us. Okay. So I might put that one on hold for the moment. For me, uh, I might stick with the cast. Uh, Bill, here we had companion conflict, and I thought, oh, no. In fact, I've written here FFS, and I think people out there know what FFS stands for. Two episodes of adventuring, and by the third they're in conflict. Why can't the good times last? You know, a companion like Jamie, I don't think would be viable in modern Doctor Who. It seems you can't just be friends. You've got to get into this conflict. And here we are, episode three, they're in conflict. I mean, we did get the I've moved online, which was mirroring what the Doctor had sort of said earlier. And things seemed all rightish after that. But for me, the damage was done to some degree. The spell was almost broken. This spell that was cast in the pilot, suddenly Bill... Ah, uh, they're in conflict. Ah, uh, she doesn't like him as much as I thought she did. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. That's all I can say. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. Which is interesting because my take out of this episode was I felt like I was finally starting to know who Bill was. Oh, and I was, really? I was starting to feel that Bill was a person. So the way that she reacted when she went back in the past, where she's genuinely concerned that, you know, maybe slavery is still a thing here. And that that's going to be a problem for her because, you know, she's obviously dark skinned. Mm. So that to me said, oh, this is somebody with you know, genuine uh, beliefs and views and, and concerns about the world. And then it went on. As I said, they had their Sound of Thunder conversation. You know, what if I step on a butterfly? And they did that better than they've done that previously because they have done that conversation previously in the series. Yeah. The way that she reacted to different things, I felt, OK, I'm seeing a real human being here. I'm seeing somebody with personality, with feelings, with depth, not just a cipher walking around, you know, passing the doctor's test tubes and telling him how brilliant he is, to coin a phrase. Mm. Well, I was going to ask, what do we think of that whole bit about, you know, have you killed people? But I'm guessing from what you've just said that you might have quite liked that bit of dialogue. I actually did because I found it confronting. Mm. And I'm sitting there actually squirming a little bit at the idea that, yes, my doctor has killed people and on a grand scale on occasions. And we like to sort of forget about that. You know, we always talk about the doctor as never cruel and never cowardly. He's done some bad stuff. And I was squirming a bit as I was watching this. And if an episode of Doctor Who can get me invested enough that I'm 
squirming and feeling the doctor's uh, guilt and feeling the doctor's um, difficulties in answering that honestly, and I'm I'm, I'm sympathising with him, mm. that to me is a good piece of drama. Now, whether I necessarily think it's a fun and enjoyable piece of drama is different, but if I'm engaged with the characters and feeling his difficulty and his discomfort, then that's doing what drama should be doing, isn't it? It is. What did you think, though, of his reply? Like, it was kind of like, look, I'm 2,000 years old, this stuff just happens sometimes. I can't think of the exact line, but he did kind of get a bit gruff there and just put her in a place. I, I liked it because he he didn't want to lie to her, but neither did he want to sound like what could be a really callous, mass-murdering bastard. Mm. So, so he, I mean, how do you explain that sometimes you have to blow up the bad guy? Yeah. You know, how do you rationalise that? Yeah, or even blowing up Scaro and, say, Remembrance of the Daleks or something. Yeah, and, and but, but but to me, you know, it, it wasn't so much the blowing up the Daleks. It's it's you know, it's the henchman that gets killed by the Doctor now and then, or whatever. It, it, yeah, mm. I, I thought it was a really fascinating conversation that I, I found really worked quite effectively. In large part, I think down to Capaldi's performance of it, and, and indeed Pearl Mackey's performance of it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fair. Do you have uh, something for us to go on with? Well, I think if we're talking about the cast, we also need to talk about the villain of the week. Oh, yes. We was uh, played by Nicholas Burns. Now, I was vaguely familiar with uh, this guy in the TV drama Coalition. He played Ed Balls alongside Mark Gatiss' Peter Mandelson. Peter Mandelson, yeah. I've not seen this. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, so um, I did recognise him. I had moments when I thought his performance was great, and I had moments when I thought his performance was sneeringly pantomime-esque. What did you think, Rob? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased you said the word pantomime because it's in my notes here. Um, I've, <laughs> <laughs> I've jotted down that Sutcliffe was a borderline panto villain. You know, oh, he's upper class, so of course he's horrible, and he's horrible about race, and he's an industrialist, and of course he's everything bad that an audience of today would hate. You know, it's, it's very stereotypical, very panto almost. I do prefer more nuance in characters, more shades of grey, but this guy was... Yes, borderline panto for me as well. Yeah, I, I have no doubt that I agree with you that the character was pantomime-esque. I thought the actor gave, at times, a good performance with the lines he was given, uh, particularly in some of his conversations with Capaldi. I thought they were quite good. Uh, other times he was more pantomime-esque, even in, in his performance. I, I agree with you, though, and this this perhaps brings me to my biggest query or negative about the episode but perhaps we can discuss the backstory of him and indeed the entire story the alien or whatever it was we still don't know uh, it was important had, had there been some little bit of uh this is you know when my great 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 grandfather discovered this was what's going on and i was brought up to do this and it's part of the you know some sort of you know history or backstory that made me go okay he's more than just a cipher like you say that at the same time would have explained what the fish was Mm. which we still don't know so how did that all work for you yeah it did get glossed over quite a lot and i guess what you're describing what you might have preferred is something maybe like tooth and claw where you got a bit more information on the the history of the family and why they built that house or that telescope and all that sort of stuff is that the kind of sort of backstory you mean uh yeah yeah absolutely or uh, another example would be the controller in day of the daleks where you think he's just a, a, a cipher bad guy, but he talks about how, well, no, when the Daleks came, my forefathers were the ones that 
cooperated and by doing that we've saved lives and you know just something that gives you a sense of okay well he has a rationale for what he's doing or he can't help but be how he is or yeah. something more than just he's the bad guy well that's the kind of nuance that i was talking about those shades of gray that i like so you can sort of understand them a bit more than than just being he is the bad guy as you say he does have lines though that make you wince like you know the ignorance of all your kind as he says to bill meaning mm. people of color you know that's like ooh, that hmm you know that that's a hell of a line that's not a panto line that's quite a realistic sort of line to my to my mind yeah so the whole racial and slavery debate I thought was at the very, very heart of this episode. Mm -hmm. It was in the forefront in terms of the way that the way that Sutcliffe reacted with Bill, but it was there in allegorical terms in the way that the creature was being treated and the doctor needed to literally free it from its chains. And this episode is of course set right in the heart of that slavery debate in Britain where seven years ago in 1807, uh, Wilberforce had managed to get through Parliament the abolition of the Slave Trade Act Yes. And then in about 20 years' time, in 1834, slavery is abolished outright in the British Empire. So we're, we're right in the middle of that period where slavery is by, by steps being abolished in Britain and the Empire. And I think that that can't be coincidental. No, no, not at all. And I mean, I actually went back and did some research on this because I thought I knew as a amateur historian, if you could call me that, I knew that this sort of stuff was happening around that time. And, and I thought the way Bill sort of presents like she'll be nabbed at any moment seemed a bit wide of the mark because views on slavery were changing in England at the time. I mean, you can go back to 1772 and there's a ruling that no authority could be exercised on slaves on English or Scottish soil. So that's like 40 years before this episode. So that's the start of that. And so I was thinking, this is kind of giving maybe modern viewers who won't go back and do the research a view of slavery. I mean, slavery is an issue. I mean, the Civil War was still 50 years away in the US being fought over slaves yeah. in part. And it, it's obviously not something that can be brushed under the carpet by any means. And it's a horrible thing. I'm not trying to say any of that. But I, I just wondered whether a modern viewer might just get this feeling that slavery was very much a thing in the UK, whereas I think by steps 40 years earlier, you couldn't be doing it in England. And as you say, how many a decade or two after this, you couldn't do it anywhere in the empire. You know, they, they were certainly changing their views at this time. Yeah, it's interesting. I raised a few moments ago the contrast between this and a classic historical. If this was a season one or season two story right back 50-something years ago, you can imagine that dialogue where, you know, Barbara would have turned around and said, well, just to let you know, kids, slavery, actually, the slave trade was abolished in uh, 1807, and in 20 years' time they'll abolish it outright, so you have nothing to fear, but da 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 You know, there'll, there'll be that educational moment. Mm like you see in stuff like Marco Polo and uh, the Reign of Terror. And, and it could have been done here. I mean, it would, it would have been slightly less obvious than back in the classic series. But you, you're right. It would have been nice if the Doctor had had a line like saying, you know, oh, you're 50, to, you're 50 years too late to be nabbed on the streets. You know, but, you know, slavery is something, something. Yeah, you're 50 years too late to be nabbed on the streets. But out there in the Empire, it's still going on. It's a nasty business. Or you know, Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that debate is... Um, being had in these parliament right now, you know, something like that. Yeah, and and I guess an episode like this does let a, a more um, curious child watching or even an adult, 
you know, maybe go and look up a Wikipedia entry at the most basic to try and learn a bit more about the era. My, my, my big fear is, though, that a lot of people won't do that and they'll just be left with the idea that, oh, Bill was walking around in 1814, London, she could have been nabbed and sold into slavery. No, that wouldn't have happened. Yeah, but the, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm okay because I think this is how the episode works. If you're the viewer that just wants to turn in, not turn in, turn on whilst having your dinner and watch an episode of Doctor Who and be entertained by a bad guy holding a fish monster prisoner and a few nice bits of Victor, uh, not Victorian, uh, Georgian London, and, and then move on. Well, that, that, that's fine. I think they'll be very much entertained. They'll see a great performance by Capaldi and they move on and that's, that's okay. Those who do see the allegory here, who do want to learn more about the slave trade, who's, who recognise that the plot with the fish the fish is representative of slavery and it's being freed from its change and the doctor comes down to that side, they will go away and learn more. And, and there is a genuine extra layer. There's an extra piece of depth in this episode that I think is very worthy. And so it does work on two levels, I think. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and another level that this creature worked on was uh, it's poop. Should we discuss poop, Dave? <laughs> Yeah, we have to, don't we? We, we really do. <laughs> and can I just say, Bill's line of no shh, and then there was a cut. Is that the first time we've had a gag like that since Bambera saying shame in Battlefield? I didn't even pick up the Battlefield one. I didn't think of it that way. Oh, really? No. <laughs> yeah, well, I can't recall what, what the actual, um, what precipitates it, but Bambera goes, ah, oh, shame. Well, and- I probably saw Battlefield for the first time when I was nine, so I didn't. Ah. <laughs> I remember the first time she said that. I thought, oh my God, is she going to say that? No, she can't say that. And then it was all over in seconds. Um, but this might be the first no shh joke we've had since then. I, I think it is, and I don't approve. Okay. So, poop, Dave. Uh, well, well, <laughs> let's, let's. We spoke last week about all the various antecedents within the classic series of the episode. And in this one, we've basically got the power of Kroll. Yes. Because yes. the, the whole premise of the power of Kroll was that they were mining Kroll poop mm-hmm. and yep. using it for energy. So, hey, kids, power of, power of Kroll, the sequel, power <laughs> of Kroll, the reboot. Who would have thought? <laughs> In terms of the world building, though, we don't really learn how this stuff is being used. We, we know what it is. He said it burns hotter and it burns longer than coal and it's really u butte stuff. But we don't know what that's being used for. Is it just being given to people who would otherwise burn coal? You know, or, or I was wondering if it was being used for some nefarious purpose in some secret laboratory somewhere or, you know, but it, it never goes off in that route. It's like, here is this amazing energy source and that's the last we hear of it. Well, it was explicitly stated that it was far more efficient at burning and producing energy than coal. So there was clearly a basic profit motive at play there. And I, I got that within the confines of the episode. I, I do appreciate what you're saying though, Rob, and I do wonder, thinking about it now, given how many little bits were unfinished, we don't know the origin of the fish creature. Mm. Given all the little hints that the doctor dropped about, well, you know, you could use this to go into space or da 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 I just wonder whether there's something bigger going on. And maybe this is going to be a bit like the long game. Yes. Where um, you think that it's just a one-off story and then about, you know, media going a bit wild and something's not quite right and you walk away and go, oh, that, that seemed a bit open-ended or oh, whatever. And then you get to the end and you go, actually, it was all part of a grander scheme. Mm. 
and maybe we'll find that the big bad at the end of the season was behind all this and was using this energy to uh, help to fuel, pardon the pun, a centuries-long plan. Or maybe they just didn't answer the question. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it could be either one. <laughs> Something I do want to note about this, it's its our Monster of the Week. Again, it's not a monster, it's a creature. But if I can just say Monster of the Week as a generic term, it's our third one in a row that's not really a monster. The sentient engine oil wasn't a monster. The microbots, I don't know why they didn't call them nanobots in that second episode. But anyway, the microbots in the second episode, they weren't monsters. They were killing people, but they weren't monsters. And here we have something that's eating people, but it's not a monster either. No, no, you're quite right. We haven't had a real villain. Well, I suppose Sutcliffe is the, is the unredeemable bad guy, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, very true. But we don't get a lot of screen time from him. Shall we move on briefly to Nardole? Because he doesn't have much to do in this episode, but he is there. Yes, go on. Um, I guess the most we see of Nardole is at the end. He's very uh, upset with the Doctor going off-world, although the Doctor hadn't been off-world per se. And then he goes down to the vault, which is now knocking. And for a moment, a brief moment, I thought, ah, knocking. He's knocking three times. Then I realised, oh, no, that tenant thing was knocking four times, wasn't it? Oh, okay. It's <laughs> oh, not that. That. <laughs> that that bloody he will knock four times nonsense. Oh, thank <laughs> Don't remind me. <laughs> Oh, oh, yeah, no, thank God, thank goodness, thank goodness, yes, no, I was quite annoyed by that scene, that was a very weak moment for me. In what way? Okay, let me pull back out to 10,000 feet, mm -hmm. I like uh, arc stuff and thread stuff where it's subtly and naturally developed across the course of a story. So, you know, Babylon 5 did it brilliantly, DS9 did it brilliantly, Blake 7 was one of the first to do it really well, where just stuff stuff that were plot points in each episode would build to other things, something that you saw in an episode and you thought, oh, I wonder what that is. In a few episodes' time, you find out that it's this, and a few episodes after that, you find out that it fills this role. What I don't like is where they just throw in, at the end of an episode, here's a bit of arc stuff. Uh, it's why I hate it in season six, this whole every couple of episodes, we'll just have the Doctor look at a scan of Amy's pregnancy just so we all know that that's a bit of the arc plot and that need, that's going on. Mm. And this, to me, is exactly that. Oh, we've had the episode. We couldn't naturally bring any arc stuff into this. We couldn't naturally develop the story. So we'll just bludgeon on with a whole bunch of nails and a screw and a bit of a hammer, a completely unconnected scene that just says, this is our bit of arc stuff for the week, everybody. It, to me, we're going back to the worst of the Moffat arc stuff, which I thought we weren't doing this season. Yeah, it is certainly doing it on the cheap, on the sly, you know, like, uh, hey, Sarah, go away, write your episode. I'll, I'll just tack on something at the end, perhaps, uh, rather than weaving it in, which I do agree is, is a lot more clever and more interesting, of course, to watch. Yeah, yeah, I... Look, I'm I'm intrigued by what it was, and 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 that's all fine. But you know, this this isn't how you do an arc. You do an arc naturally. You do an arc so you almost don't notice it you, until you go back and go, wow, that made that made sense. Yeah, that built on that. Tacking this on, like like the Missy bit at the end of a uh, deep breath. It's just a tack on. That's not clever. This this is the worst of Moffat's arc stuff. I thought we were away from that. I hope that we don't get more of this in the season. 
Mm. And of course, I mentioned the uh, the name Sarah a moment ago. That's of course Sarah Dollard, a fellow Aussie. So big shout out to Sarah. This is her second episode. The first one being Face the Raven. But rather than retread some themes from that, she actually retreaded another uh, Capaldi episode, to my mind at least, in the form of Kill the Moon, with the Doctor leaving the choice up to Bill as to what should be done. Did you pick up on that and think, oh, that's like when he said to um, Clara, oh, it's look, it's all up to you, and actually took off in the TARDIS and left it all up to her. Did you see any parallels there? I, I didn't, because I don't think there was ever any doubt what Bill would decide. And I think the way the Doctor looked at her when he said that, he knew it. So I don't think there was any any hint of a chance there. It was, come on, make the decision. I know the decision you're going to make. Like, he was ready for it. So I thought it was just it was a nice moment for him to give Bill, but no, I don't I think I didn't see the parallel there. I'm interested that you did. Yeah, I, I definitely did, and I was thinking, oh, this is like that moment with Clara, and then I was starting to think, why is this only a thing occasionally? Normally, he just acts and does his own thing, but with Clara, it's like, oh well, you're a, you're a human. This planet's yours. It's your choice. And here with Bill, it was essentially the same thing. Like you know, your planet, your choice. But why does this only come up every now and then? Normally, he's quite happy to do whatever he wants to do. I, I think it was because of the conversation they'd had, which he he clearly was felt a bit hurt by. Not hurt by what Bill had said, but hurt by his own realisations of what he'd had to say. Mm. And this was his way of sort of getting back into Bill's trust and Bill's confidence and showing her that he'd moved past and they could work together again. I, I actually thought it was quite a nice little way, rather than sort of glibly saying, okay, we're all friends now, are we? Yes, I understand. Just to say, okay, I'll let you be the moral lead right now. And then for her to see that he was going to do that anyway. Mm. I thought that was a very clever way of actually wrapping up the tension that they built in the fight. Fair enough. Do you have any other points on this before we get to our word of the week? Uh, yes, and you've actually segued nicely by mentioning... Uh, Sarah's previous work, Face the Raven. I was a big fan of Face the Raven because I thought, wow, this is an episode that's not pulling its punches and that is actually giving me real dramatic moments without uh, sugarcoating them. And I, I like that in Doctor Who. Shame it was all spoiled when they brought her back to life two episodes later, but we won't talk about that. No, no, we won't talk about pulling the rug. <laughs> no. And this was another episode that, again, gripped me really well because from the moment that uh, young Spider is pulled through the ice, I thought, okay, we're not in Kansas this week. Kids die. Yep. They're not pulling their punches. This is one where, okay, the stakes aren't destruction at a global scale, but the stakes are such that innocent young people, including children, can die. And that, to me, always adds a sense of depth and power to an episode. And I'm glad that uh, Sarah wrote it again this way. I'm also quite enjoyed the aspect of bringing the street urchins in. It was very Oliver Twist. And, and again, if there's some children out there who watch this and a parent not only says, oh, this is like um, The Artful Dodger and Oliver Twist, and they say, oh, what's that? Oh, it's a book by Charles Dickens. Would you like to read it? Or do you want to watch the movie? It won't be a lot of kids to do it, but any of them that do go, hey, I want to learn more about this period and these sorts of characters and maybe does discover a bit of Dickens, that's a really good thing as well. And I think that's Doctor Who at its best. Definitely. I mean, any time you kill a kid, that is a, a big deal. Although, conversely, at the end, we do have them take over the manor house and eat all the food they want, which was kind of a fairy tale ending. So it's it's kind of a game of two halves there. 
It is. But this has to bring us to, I think, what's the final point that I want to bring up, and it's one that I foreshadowed earlier. Mm-hmm. The doctor was genuinely helpless to save the life of the child at the start. I think we can agree on that. Yeah, absolutely. We then get to the bad guy or the henchman. I don't don't know if he was given a name, but the henchman that falls through the ice right towards the end when Capaldi's tied up. Yes, and he's holding the sonic. There's a moment there where the doctor says, "Turn turn it off. Well, let's go back. The bad guy takes the sonic screwdriver, and that means that he's now a target for the fish creatures the doctor seems first to want to help him and say quick turn it off turn it off because he knows his life's in danger there's then a moment though where he says oh we'll just throw it to me and the guy thinks that's going to help save his life but all it is is making sure that capaldi doesn't lose his sonic screwdriver yes (laughs) that to me was just a little bit too close to that callous into the dalek stuff that i I, I thought that was it was the one moment where I thought, oh, is this just a little too callous, a little too far? How did that play for you? It, for me, it played for laughs primarily, but it does push him in that direction. I, I, I don't disagree. Yeah, okay. Okay. Shall we do our words of the week? Yes. So what part of this did you find underwhelming? Well, the word unfulfilling. Oh, unfulfilling, sorry. No, no, that's that's quite all right. I thought this was going to be a really great episode via the time it was set in. And this goes back to what you were saying at the start. You thought the world building was excellent. I didn't. I mean, to me, this is 1814. There's peace with France, you know, before Napoleon comes back from exile, of course, and fights Waterloo a year later. Um, Yet there didn't seem to be any of the the colour or the politics of the time. And I know you're going to mention that there's slavery mentioned and stuff like that, and that obviously was happening, but... It just didn't feel like 1814 to me. This same story could have played out if it was 1408 or 1565 or 1740 or, you know, any other year that there was a frost fair. To me, the setting, which I was really excited about, if if listeners remember back to when we did sort of a a preview of this series and we looked at the trailer, and I was like, oh, look at that one with those, you know, those uh, soldiers in the red coats and stuff. That's going to be amazing. Uh, I just didn't feel that the era was well served at all, which is a damn shame because I love this era. And I just felt that this could have been set, as I say, 10, 20 years earlier, 30 years in the future, whatever. Um, Obviously, she chose this particular frost fair because it was the last one and she was trying to explain why it was the last one, obviously, because the creature went away. But to me, I I felt it was unfulfilling because I just didn't feel the world was that well done. I thought more could have been done. Okay, interesting. Mm. Well, I chose Grace. Yes. And that's a reference to the slavery and the William Wilberforce tones of this episode. And obviously Amazing Grace being the representative of that, in that I thought that you can't assess this episode without recognising those allegories, and there's a certain grace in that. Mm. And I thought there was also a certain grace in the writing of this episode as well. So there was a double meaning there for me. So I... I I suspect, Rob, that this is going to be one of those episodes that you could watch it two or three times and depending on your mood as you watch it or how it washes over you each particular time, take away a slightly different vibe from it and take away a slightly different level of enjoyment from it. I think you can it, – it's one of those episodes, one of those stories you can really be up and down on depending on how how you are as you watch it. Yeah, I think you're quite right, yeah. Yeah, and, and – and, I think for me, some of the stuff that just missed the mark for you resonated quite well for me. 
and that could just be a reflection of how it was that we were as as, as we let it wash over us. Mm. But I did I did see it, and as I say, if this is if this is an episode of Doctor Who that most people watch casually, enjoy, walk away from and forget, but a few kids out there go, I want to learn more about slavery. I want to learn more about England at that time. I'm going to go read Oliver Twist or, or Dickens, whatever it is. That to me is Doctor Who at its best. And I reformed to reflect that in my word. Absolutely. Well, now that brings us to scores and I'll jump in here first. And I want to give this a very watery <laughs> seven out of 10. And it's also making me reevaluate all my other scores. For example, Smile last week I gave seven and a half, and I'm definitely going to bump that down to seven now because I don't think Smile was better than this. And I'm having this trouble all through the series that as I rewatch these at night with my wife, as I think about them during the week, as I listen to other podcasts, my scores kind of ping pong all over the place. But for right here, right now, this hot take, I'm thinking seven out of ten, but I'm not entirely solid with that. Mm, interesting. I've given the last two episodes a seven and I'm very comfortable with how I've assessed those. Um, Maybe I could have given the first one a seven and a half if we're going outside integers, but I'm comfortable there both sevens. I'm giving Thin Ice an eight. Wow. Because I I did think it was better than the the last two. I did think there was more substance to it. I did think there was a bit more depth to it. it. It didn't pull its punches. It was more dangerous, more nasty at places, but just the right level. It all, it all worked for me. This isn't an instant classic. It's not a 9 or a 10, but I thought it was a little bit better than the last couple. So I'm very comfortable giving it an 8. Okay. And and look, as you say, on, a, on another viewing tonight, even when I sit down with my wife, it may redeem itself a little. It may be a 7.5 for me. I don't know. But at the moment, I'm just saying 7. Yeah. Shall we go to the sports desk? Let's go. Here we are at the sports desk. Uh, kudos to all our listeners who have figured out where that theme music comes from again. And we'll kick off with our MVP of the week. For me, like last week, it's pretty slim pickings. I think it's got to be Capaldi again by default. Dave, I'm sure you'll have a stronger opinion. Uh, I'm actually giving it to Sarah Dollard. Oh, very good. Yes. Oh, why didn't I think of that? Uh, I think that she's written a very clever script. I think that she's written the kind of Doctor Who that I like to watch. And this is her second strong performance in a row. And I think she's very worthy of being our player of the week this week. Absolutely. And this, even with me sort of, you know, being down on it for certain reasons and giving it a 7 out of 10 and all this sort of stuff, it is it is quite a good episode in general. So please don't think I'm down on it as much as I probably sound, listeners. <laughs> Shall we move on to player of the week? Dave, do you want to take this one first? Yeah, I'm giving my play of the week to the moment where the young boy Spider was dragged through the ice because that's the moment when this episode turns from a fun frolic in ye olden days London to, wow, something bad's happening. This episode's serious. The stakes are real. I'm I'm invested now. We need to We need to fix this. And I think that's the moment when an episode can turn really, really effectively – and it was done very, very well. The Doctor's reaction, Bill's reaction, I like that scene. That's my play of the week. Okay. My play of the week is the use of the old-fashioned scuba gear. 
I quite like that sort of thing where they'll, you know, not only are they dressed for the, the period, but they're also going to use some um, some gear. It's probably gear that wasn't used in that era. I think it was probably a little more modern than the era, but it was still quite retro, and they're actually getting down and doing some investigation. It was, it was weirdly gung-ho, like, let's go down and get eaten, I think was the line. <laughs> I mean, that's something you actually don't want to happen. But here they're like, yeah, let's go and get eaten. Let's find out what's happening. But I, I, I like the use of that old-fashioned scuba gear. I, I like episodes where they just do... Stuff like that. It did make me wonder whether Sarah Dallard had been watching the goodies episode of the Loch Ness Monster. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it was very reminiscent of that. Yeah, well, Nessie did get a sort of a quasi-mention as well during the episode. It was, but did the suits have breathing tubes attached? I was wondering that. I thought, did, does it attach to something on the back? They didn't have like very big backpacks or anything. Maybe it's some sort of modern retro version of um, that sort of it, gear. It didn't occur to me until the moment when they came up through the ice at a completely different point, which I thought, was there a breathing tube to get them all the way there? Or did they, you're right, did they have a, a tank on the back or something? Or maybe we're just thinking about it too hard and we're just meant to say, no, let's wash over that one. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> let's move on to foul of the week. I'll go first here because I've already mentioned it. My foul of the week was Sutcliffe being a borderline panto villain. And that whole vibe about, oh, he's horrible about race, he's an industrialist, he's everything a modern audience would hate, you know, it kind of would have been better for me if he was just painted with a bit more subtlety, some nuance, some shades of grey. Instead, it was just like, here is a bad guy, he's wearing a bright blue jacket, you can't miss him, the doctor's punching him, he's the bad guy. Oh, yep, fair enough. No, that's a good point. I went for Bill effectively all but dropping the swear word. I'm going to be old fashioned here. Doctor Who doesn't swear. Has no place in this show. I don't like the priesthood being set. Yes, she didn't say it, but it's very clear exactly what it was meant to be. No, that's that's a no-no for me, foul of the week. All right, that wraps up the sports desk, which just leaves us to go into Arc of the Week fan watch and listener feedback. Dave, Arc of the Week. Uh, look, I think we've discussed it. We now know the thing in the vault is something that Nardol seems a bit scared of. It's something that he feels can be conversed with, and it's something that can knock. Is it the John Sim Master? I know that's what a lot of people are saying, but I don't see how that works. I don't see why that would work. Why would the Doctor have the Master locked up in a cage without even being able to give him fish heads through a big grill or something? (laughs) Well, we don't know what's in there. It might be Gallifreyan technology. Maybe it's quite large in there and there's food and all sorts of entertainments, but he just needs him confined. Yeah, that seems odd to me. I, I, I get why people are saying it, but it just seems odd to me. Are you in favour of that theory? or I, I've i just got nothing better. I mean, one of our listeners, um, Stephen, Steed Stylin, on Twitter, has said Gallifrey's in there. That seemed quite interesting. Um, you know, that's where they've locked up the pocket universe, perhaps, and maybe the Doctor's promised the Hartnell Doctor, tying it into ma- perhaps having the Hartnell Doctor back, as seems to be the big rumour at the moment, in the finale. But, oh, look, who the hell knows? Some people are saying it's the first Doctor locked up in there. That makes even less sense to me <laughs> than locking up the Sim Master. Yeah, I yeah, I, I don't know. Well, none of us know. But um, for some reason, the Sim Master theory just doesn't resonate with me as a logical thing to do, particularly if, you know, we are to accept that Missy is a future regeneration of the Master. Mm. Why would the Doctor have a previous one? locked up because certainly fandom has usually accepted that there's a rule that time lords can't cross each other's time streams 
Has he fallen in from a parallel universe? That's why he's similar but different. Like, he's got shorter hair, he's got a beard, but it is the John Sim Master. Has he come from a parallel universe? So there's this clash, because in this universe, the Master is Missy, and that's why he's had to lock him up. Well, it's a valid theory, because we do know in science fiction that Van Dyke beards do mean evil parallel universe. So, <laughs> maybe. All right, and on to Fan Watch. Do you have anything for Fan Watch this week? Uh, look, I have no doubt that that arc scene will exercise a lot of fans in one way or the other. I would not be surprised if the swear word that I've identified caused a bit of debate. Other than that, I don't think it's one that's going to exercise fans a lot. Oh, Dave. Yeah? Oh, you've missed one. <laughs> yeah? And this is one of the rabbit holes. Go on. The line. It's a bit more black than they show in the movies, Bill notes. So is Jesus, the Doctor replies. History's a whitewash. Already, I'm seeing a lot of talk on Twitter, both pro and con. The the term SJW, or social justice warrior, is being thrown around a lot. Some people really throwing their toys out of the pram, saying, you know, social justice warriors have taken over Doctor Who. Other people saying, social justice warriors have always written Doctor Who. It's what the show's about, you idiots. Um, and the fight has already kicked off. So I'm actually already seeing this going on out there and I'm thinking it may only just grow over the week ahead. Oh, that's fascinating. I did notice the line, but the historian in me, um, and, you know, I did my degree in history and I'm, that's my first love, kind of took it as a well-der. Mm. Like, like we all know that, that Jesus came from the Middle East and would have been darker skin than he's normally portrayed. And I kind of took that as a real... Of course. Yeah. Move on. Yeah. How how is that controversial? <laughs> but how about history is a whitewash? I mean, whitewash is a is a word that, uh, to use a, a modern term, is triggering a lot of people lately. We've just had Ghost in the Shell that movie, and people saying, "Oh, look, Scarlett Johansson should have been an, an Asian actress in that movie." It's whitewashing. You know, um, it's it's a very hot button word. It's a very topical word, and it was inserted in there, I think, by Sarah Dollard. Very deliberately and it certainly has got people talking uh look i i get that it may have and you know i'm i'm quite a long way in my politics from being a social justice warrior but i saw it very much as a very very much a statement of the obvious jesus did come from the middle east he was darker skinned and he has historically always been portrayed in movies and television and artwork etc etc as a Western European white gentleman, and that that is a case of whitewashing of history. It is inaccurate, and I took it very much as face value. And I get now that you've mentioned it that other people won't, and you're absolutely right. Other people won't, but as I say, I just took it at face value because I think it's a fact. Mm. Look, I, I I agree with you, and and, and and that's not a piece of social justice worrying on my part. I'm not that person at all. Mm. But when it's a fact, it's a fact. Exactly right. Well, I'm glad I did this rabbit hole right at the end so we can move on to listener feedback. <laughs> okay. I think the first one's from you, Rob. Yeah, I'll kick off. This is from JC Seadoil Munoz or JC Geek205 on Twitter. He's been talking to us quite a lot through the Whovians AU hashtag. He says, Hi, guys. I just listened to your latest episode of the podcast, and I must say I am enjoying some of the conversation about Smile. I particularly like the comparison reaction of the reanimated people to 1970s unit with the shoot first and ask questions later routine. Keep up the good work. By the way, I found that Smile kept giving away certain references to Cybermen in anticipation of the Mondasians. Also, 
did you catch the reference about Bill suggesting they call a helpline, a reference to Missy and Clara? Anyway, we should definitely discuss more sometime. Thank you, JC. Okay, I've got one here from Stephen B at Steed underscore Stylum without the G. The pilot was charming and smile started well, but I felt it was a step down in plot and characterization. Hoping Thin Ice lives up to the trailer. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what Steve thinks now that the episode is out in the wild. Yeah, but thanks for engaging with us there, Steve. Absolutely. This is uh, Endless Mike on Twitter, or M.A. Solko, one of our contributors to the Doctor Who show. He says, what's in the vault? Marco Polo, episodes 1, 3, 4, and 6. Christmas will your flashback with David Bradley filling in the missing parts. And on a completely different topic, Smile was perfunctory Doctor Who, bolstered only by the performances of the leads and amazing visuals. Are behind-the-scenes crew eligible for MVP? Goff would get the nod for me. Overall, it's 6 out of 10. A fine way to kill an hour, but nothing worth re-watching. And I think that's very fair. I could get behind that review of Smile myself. Yeah, no, that was good. Interesting that he's chosen those episodes of Marco Polo. Uh, Marco Polo is a top 10 story for me, but there's one episode, 500 Eyes, which is woefully boring. And I wish that he hadn't found that one and found um, episode 7, Assassinate Peking, instead. But, oh, well, I'll take any episode of Marco Polo. <laughs> I think we all would. We have one from Kat, who tweets at... Cats with a K underscore cat's paws, again with a K. Hi, guys. I do not normally do email, but hopefully my thoughts on Smile would make more sense this way. I barely give Smile a four, and I mean barely give it a four. I liked it until they landed on the planet then. Nope, that's about it. For one, I was a little put out that the Doctor was going to blow up a ship without making sure no one was left on board. And second... It seemed to me like the emoji bot threat was lost in translation somewhere. Even the explanation fell a little flat for me. At least in The Girl Who Waited, we knew why the Doctor wanted Amy, then later Rory, to stay away from the robots. Oh well, Saturday is a new Doctor Who and Bill will see a proper monster and help the Doctor with the threat. Have a great day, Cat. So Cat's there echoing one of the big issues I think both of us, but particularly you raised with the episode there, Rob. Yeah, blowing up the ship without making sure no one was left. That's just a huge clangor. But she's also made reference to The Girl Who Waited, which a lot of fans have been making reference to in the last couple of weeks, which I find interesting because that's one of my least favourite episodes of Doctor Who ever. Maybe I need to go rewatch it and see what they're all seeing. Well, that's quite interesting. I don't mind The Girl Who Waited, actually. And I'm not even an Amy fan. Oh, no, it was such a manufactured, confected, obvious ending. It, you, you know that episode of The Simpsons where Ron Howard guests and he's doing his pitch meeting to the movie producers and every movie he has is, and then they get to an emotional point where he has to decide which of his friends lives and which one dies. And I thought the whole th- <laughs> way through The the Girl Away, I'm thinking they're just getting us to that point. We know which one's going to die. We know exactly what they're going to They're just trying to manipulate me. I feel offended. It's boring. I hate Amy anyway. Move on. Yeah. Didn't like that episode at all. All I'll add to that is, Kat, if you give it a four out of ten, have you met J.R. Southall? I think you'd get on very well with him. (laughs) Finally, this is from Richo, who's from the Gallifrey Base Forum. He sent this to me as a private message over on Gallifrey Base. Hi, Rob. Just a quick message to say that with the Whovians thread, and by that he's referring to the Whovians TV show that we're talking about over there, I discovered your podcast and very much enjoyed the two review episodes for the series so far. I'm looking forward to the next. It's always refreshing to hear voices that are passionate informed but also reasonable 
I had your old pals Graham and the Colonel pegged within two bars of the music starting. Thanks, Rob. Keep up the good work from Richard. It, that's good. It's been a lot of fun actually on Twitter this last week finding all of these Doctor Who fans that are also late show fans and re- recognise Graham and the Colonel. So yeah, lots of fun there. Yeah, definitely. That Whovians AU tag is still working its ass off for us. We're meeting all these new Australian fans. I'm typically the, our show is listened to a lot in the UK and some in in the US. But we're finding all these new Aussie fans, and obviously Aussies of a certain age will remember the Late Show, and that's been very gratifying. Yeah, there's been a real blooming of the whole podcasting scene in Australia lately, which is good to see. Yeah, absolutely. A big shout out to a, a new bunch in Western Australia doing a podcast called New to Who. And if you're particularly a new fan when it comes to the classic series, that could be a podcast for you as they delve into the old stories. Yes, I've listened to their first proper episode, which looked at the Terror of the Zygons. It's a really fun conversation. They're not shackled by any strict formats or you know, going in order. They just have a really good conversation. Very pleasant to listen to. I'm looking forward to the next one. Well done, guys, and welcome to the scene. Absolutely. And on that note, Dave, I think we're, uh, we're done for another week. We are, but of course our regular monthly episode will be coming out a few hours after this one does, which uh, includes a lovely walk down memory lane looking at some of our favourite books with myself and a couple of guests. So, yeah, hopefully you'll listen to that one as well. I hope you do Gary Downey's cookbook. Well, I wouldn't want to spoil it for you, Rob. (laughs) But of course we'll be discussing next week's episode in seven days' time, and that's Knock Knock. You looking forward to this one, Rob? The trailer makes it look so good, you know. It's got Poirot in it. Come on. Oh, okay. Is that what that was? Yeah, David Suchet. He's playing the Landlord, not to be confused with the Dream Lord, of course. I'm wondering if that's a, that's a clue. Anyway, I'm, I'm yes, long story short, I'm very excited. Okay, I, I thought it looked like Skins meets Friday the 13th, so we'll see what it turns out to be. All right, I'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.